Have you ever heard the phrase that knowledge is power? Probably have, many of you. Often it's used to encourage education. Um, kids are thinking about what to do after high school. Hey, knowledge is power. You should go to, secondary, you should go to higher education and so forth. It can also be used in business to describe the kind of advantage that one company may have over others if they have knowledge of technology or use of technology. Also, use, can be used in military expeditions that uh, a, a great general might have uh, knowledge of strategies, military-wise, that benefits his side or his forces more than his adversary that might have a much higher or many more uh, soldiers. And of course, it can be used in religion as well. Knowledge is power. Well, the Christian faith places a high value on knowledge. And it's knowledge that surpasses, far surpasses military strategy or the knowledge of certain strategies in military or business or in the world of science. The Bible doesn't use the phrase knowledge as power. It doesn't use that that phrase specifically, but... To know the truth in Scripture is powerful. It is really powerful. Paul describes salvation in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. He says, salvation is a coming to a knowledge of the truth. That's how he describes salvation, coming to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel. Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, if you abide in me, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Knowledge is powerful. Daniel chapter 11, verse 32 says, those who know their God, those who have knowledge of their God, those who know their God will stand firm and take action. A knowledge of the truth truly is powerful. It has powerful effects upon us and in us and through us. On the other hand, a lack of knowledge of the truth is deadly dangerous, especially for those who claim to be Christians. God says through the prophet Hosea in Hosea 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Listen to that. My people are destroyed. They perish for lack of knowledge. He goes on to say, Because you have rejected knowledge... I reject you from being a priest. He's talking to the spiritual leaders of Israel at this time. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest. And since you have forgotten the law of God, I also will forget your children. The lazy and daydreaming watchmen, or those that are supposed to be watching over the spiritual health of the nation of Israel, are rebuked in Isaiah 56, verse 9. When it says, his watchmen are blind, they are without knowledge. 
They are silent as dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Ignorance of truth, brothers and sisters, is not bliss. It is disastrous. In the Christian church, there has been a kind of diminishing of knowledge, often in exchange for experience, feelings, and emotions. There's a concern of an overemphasis on using the mind to obtain knowledge. I've even heard some preachers encourage people to stop thinking so much so that you can connect with God in your heart, as though somehow the mind and heart are in opposition to each other when it comes to abiding in Christ or seeking the Lord. Some of this, of course, is in response to an over-intellectual approach to the Bible and theology that mind is all that matters, right? Just thinking right thoughts and so forth, where it's all about stuffing your head with more information in order to solve theological riddles that you're kind of curious about or just have right answers or just to be able to win debates. Of course, we want nothing to do with that. But the ditch on the other side of the road is an anti-intellectualism, an an anti-knowledge approach that I think is equally dangerous and perhaps more of a concern in many churches. Have you ever noticed, I was talking to Sabrina the other day, because she remembers about four years ago when I started bringing this up to her and my other kids. Have you ever noticed how often people say, I feel, instead of I think, or I believe, or I'm convinced of? Now, don't, okay, if, if you say this, I say it still sometimes, but, but how often do people say that? I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel, I feel. It's because feelings have become the apex of our experience. We live in a time where feelings and emotions are the most important thing. And thinking and theological knowledge is kind of diminished. It's about what we feel. To be sure, there's a kind of knowledge that puffs up. For sure. right? Knowledge without love puffs up. First Corinthians 8 says, This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So knowledge absent of love puffs up. There's also a kind of knowledge, a kind of secret Gnostic knowledge that puffs up. But a true knowledge of God, I think, leads to true humility. Think of the, think of the people that encountered God. I think of Job. At the end of Job, remember, you remember Job, like the first 35, 36 chapters it's about Job's calamity. It's, about, it's this conversation between him and his friends. And then God addresses Job. And then at the very end, Job says, I had heard of you with the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you, and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, he came to a knowledge of God that he didn't beforehand no. Think of Moses. Moses said, if I have found favor in your sight, God, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Help me to know you better and know your ways that I might, that I might find favor in your sight. And then he says, please show me your glory. God says, no one can see my face, but here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll put you in a rock, I'll hide you, and I'll pass before you. You can see my backside, and I'm going to proclaim my name to you. In other words, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to give you knowledge of who I am. I would say what we need, and I'm not just saying here at Real Life Church, this is what I need, this is what you need, this is what I think is largely needed is a revival of a desire and passion to know God. To know Him in truth. I believe what we need is for God to arouse a desire within us to an ever-deepening knowledge of who He is and of His ways. To not be satisfied with a surface level, just vague, nonspecific knowledge of God. Right? We need to hear and heed what Hosea the prophet said in Hosea 6. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And as we see the radical secularization of, our, of the culture around us and how it's infiltrating the church as well, it should give us an even greater urgency. I have a great urgency. I mean, I, for, for my family, for your families, for this church family. And here's why. The activists, the secular humanist activists, they won't rest until their vision for the culture has zero resistance. Do you know that? In other words, they want everyone and every organization to embrace and celebrate their vision of the world. And listen, vague, nondescript thoughts about God will not be a bulwark to the coming tsunami. It won't be. be just cliches mantras a few years ago the pastor of a very large church in america was interviewed on cnn and when asked about his views on homosexuality and same-sex marriage he gave the, the what has become the standard non-answer answer right it's the answer but it's a non-answer i mean it's and he, he, he said the following. He said, well, it's really not our place to tell anyone how they should live. That's their journey. The relativizing and secularizing of the culture is clearly making its way into the church. Albert Moeller, who's the president of um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he said that as the sexual revolution keeps steamrolling through the culture, eventually every Christian institution, and on his mind was Christian schools and universities and Bible schools and seminaries, and he said in every Christian church, and every single faithful Christian is going to have to answer the same question that pastor was asked on CNN. Or something like that. 
And in, in order to answer and live faithfully, we need to know the God of the Scriptures. We need to know Him. We need to know the, the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Judge that is revealed to us in the Bible. Well, the text we're going to look at this morning here in 2 Peter chapter 1 puts a really high premium on knowledge and attaches some remarkable things to knowledge. These are, excuse me, these are the opening words of Peter's letter. Let me read them again. Tim just read them a few moments ago. Let me read them again. It says, grace and peace, excuse me, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There are three things that come to us through knowledge of God in this passage. And if you are in Christ, my prayer is that this would light a fire in you to press on to know the Lord. Three things. First, multiplied grace and peace come to us through the knowledge of God. Second, power to live godly, excuse me, power to live and be godly comes to us through the knowledge of God. And third, the experience of the life of God in your soul comes through the knowledge of God. Let's look at these each one at a time. Multiplied grace and peace comes through knowledge. Verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter's saying almost in a prayer, in a form of a prayer, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Who doesn't want grace and peace multiplied to us? All right? Multiplied. Not just grace and peace to you. Grace and peace multiplied to you. The word multiplied means given in the fullest measure. Not just given, but given fully in the fullest measure. And how is it given? By what means is this grace and peace lavished upon us with such abundance? It is in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The word translated knowledge here indicates a true knowledge. The Greek word that's translated knowledge is gnosis or gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. This is epi. Gnosis. So it's got the epi prefix, speaking of a true knowledge, a real knowledge. Not all who claim to know God or have knowledge of God are truly know God or are legitimate claims. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6.20, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Paul is probably addressing the ancient heresy of Gnosticism there. 
Gnosticism has been, has been the oldest and the, the most um, persistent heresy to affect the Christian church. It's still around. This heresy asserts that some have a secret or hidden knowledge that they get directly from God that others don't have access to unless you get it from them. Paul says it is a false knowledge. It's not a true knowledge. So we are to go after true knowledge, which includes information about God, right? It includes things about him, but it's so much more than just things about him. I think that's why Moses said, Lord, he doesn't just say, tell me things about you. He says, Lord, show me your ways. Notice again what is multiplied to us in the knowledge of God. It's grace and peace. Now think about how this works. I mean, the good news of the gospel should be the best news you've ever heard. And yet, how often do we kind of get bored with that old message? We've heard it so many times. The more you and I understand and the deeper we know that God is majestic and holy and without sin and pure light and righteous and cannot look on sin. And we recognize that does not describe us. We are not holy and righteous and pure light and so forth. And yet, then we come to realize, yet God saved me through Jesus Christ, not because of works I've done, not because he thought, you know, Josh, he's really got a lot of potential. I could use him in my kingdom. I'm going to get him. No. Not because of works I've done in righteousness, but purely because of his own purpose and grace. You know what happens when, when, you realize, when you come to a deeper knowledge of that? What, what happens? Grace comes to us. What happens? You are in awe of God's grace. Furthermore, the more you and I come to know the mighty power of God and that not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father, not a single sparrow and you're more important than many sparrows, Jesus said. Doesn't it make you feel good? You're more important than many sparrows. And he knows the number of hairs on your head. What happens when we have a deepened awareness and understanding and knowledge of this? His peace that surpasses all comprehension is multiplied to us. It comes to us. And we can face all the challenges of life and the insanity in this world with peace and courage. So through grace, or excuse me, through knowledge, grace and peace is multiplied to us. Amen? Second, power to live and be godly comes through knowledge of God. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. I remember not, not too long ago, I was talking with someone who was 
He was just living a careless and, quite frankly, an ungodly life. And he kept telling, he, he, he quoted this verse a few times. He said, yeah, but God's given me all things pertaining to life and godliness. Kind of like, yeah, let's forget about what I'm doing. Just claiming this verse as though it just kind of floats down from heaven upon us magically. I remember saying to him, brother, this, this comes, this, this power to, to live and be godly comes through knowing God. Relationship. Knowing him. So God gives or has given us power for life and godliness. The word life speaks of eternal life, but don't let that throw you off, okay? This is not saying that these things are given so that sometime in the future, in eternity, when you go to heaven, you can enjoy these all things that pertain to life and godliness. No. For the Christian, eternal life begins now. Right? Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me, he or she will never die. And how is this life, this life that's been given to us through knowledge, how is it to be conducted? In godliness or reverence for God, living our lives before God in the fear of God for the glory of God? And these things are given to us through the knowledge of God. This, this growing and knowing God. Which means there's quite a lot at stake in ignorance, right? Through an ignorance of God, we forfeit this life and this Excuse me, we forfeit this power for life and godliness. John Piper said, it is not that knowing guarantees godliness. It doesn't. But it seems that ignorance guarantees ungodliness. Because Peter says the divine power that leads to godliness is given through the knowledge of God. Ignorance guarantees ungodliness. Ignorance of truth, ignorance of God. And, I, and I, I just would add this. Settling for just vague, nondescript views of God. Now, and re, I'm going to read something last week that I totally agree with. He said we should say God is good, right? Do you remember that during our worship service? God is good. We should sing of the goodness of God and amen. And we should praise God that he is loving, right? God is love. But I hope that we dig deeper and fill in what does it mean that God is good and not just have it be a mantra that we say over and over again. Or God is love. Understanding what has God shown us or how has God shown us his mighty love. Instead of just having it be a mantra, we say, we just repeat. J.I. Packer in his book, in his book, Knowing God, says godliness means responding to God's revelation, which I would argue is knowledge of God in Scripture, in trust and obedience, faith and worship, prayer and praise, submission and service. Life must be seen and lived in light of God's word. This and nothing else is true religion. So through knowledge, power is given for life and godliness. And third, 
sharing. Now listen to this. Sharing in the divine nature comes through knowledge. Verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This phrase, partakers of the divine nature, is really, quite frankly, it's breathtaking. You will never plumb the depths of this in this life. Well, for all eternity. But let's see how we get there. First, promises are given. They are granted, we see, right? He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, it could be that these promises are given through the knowledge of God in verse 3, or it could be that um, Peter could be pointing directly back to the one who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So it could be through the knowledge of God or through God directly. I don't know that it matters that much. Because what do you do with promises? The promises of God. You know them, right? You learn them. You know them. You believe them and you live in light of them. Isn't that what you do? So check this out. The promises are given to us so that, when you see the word so that there, it's purpose. It's speaking of purpose. Here's the purpose for the promises that are given to us according to Peter here in 2 Peter 1.4. So that through them, the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. We have to know the promises of our promise-keeping God that he's made to us. We have to know these promises in order to be a partaker in the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. So we need to understand first what this is not and then what it is. Listen, we do not become God. Amen? All right? We're all on the same page there. We are not merged into God. We are not immersed into God. That's all Eastern pantheism or New Age mumbo-jumbo. Okay? That's not Christian at all. The word partaker, excuse me, but there is something mysterious and supernatural here. Something that we cannot, and we have to be okay with this, we cannot completely get our minds wrapped around. Okay, the word partaker is the Greek word koinonos. If that sounds familiar, maybe you've heard the word koinonia for fellowship. Koinonos. This is speaking of sharing in something or partaking in something or fellowshipping with something. Promises are given to us so that through the knowledge of them, through the knowledge of these promises, we may share in the divine nature. This is a glorious thing. A man named Henry Skugel. He was a Scottish preacher, um, 16th and 17th century. He wrote, he wrote a book in the 17th century that was influential in the conversion of George Whitfield. Anyone heard of George Whitfield? He's the, the well-known evangelist that was used in, here in America and in England during the, the First Great Awakening. Skugel wrote a book that was influential in 
Whitfield's conversion. And I think the name of the book gets at what Peter's talking about here, this partaking of the divine nature. The title of Skugel's book is The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Think about that. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Here's what Skugel said in the book. He said, True knowledge is a union of the soul with God. A real, not, not an immersion, not, right, not, not being immersed, but a union of the soul with God. A real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or as the Apostle Paul said, it is Christ being formed in us. And this participation in the divine nature is given to us through God's precious and very great promises, knowing them, believing them, and living in the light of them. I hope it's becoming clear that this knowledge by which grace and peace is multiplied and power comes to us to live and be godly and by which we partake of the divine nature is found in God's word. I hope that's obvious. I I think it probably is. It comes from God's word. The connection is this. The knowledge we're talking about comes from hearing the word of God with faith. Remember what Paul said to the church in Galatia? He said, does God give his spirit and and work miracles among you because you obeyed the law or because you heard with faith? Heard the message, heard the word, heard the gospel. Faith comes through hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. How do we know God? Listen, how do we know God apart from his word? How do we? How do we know God with a closed book? We don't. We might know him secondhand through other people. Right? Books we read from others, messages we hear from others. But he wants to speak to us. He wants to speak to you directly. How do we know his promises apart from what he said? We are left to look inward and listen to our own darkened intuition which often lies to us. Apart from the word, faith starves. Belief or believing is on life support. Thomas Goodwin, a 17th or a preacher from a long time ago, doesn't matter. He said, unbelief is an intelligent turning away from the word of God. It is rooted in negligence. And there's so much negligence of the word of God. So many Bibles. I mean, imagine, I mean, how many, how many Bibles do you think we have in all of our homes here? Well, I mean, some people have hundreds in their own home. Um, <laughs> hundreds. So many Bibles in many homes so infrequently opened. Such disregard, and I I put it this way, such disregard for God. For God. 
for him. Not just words. And no wonder many professing Christians feel like they're stumbling through life. Now listen, there are no second-class Christians, okay? The blood of Jesus can make the foulest clean, right? Praise his name. That's my only hope. But, so there's no second-class Christians, but ignorance of what Chalmers, or, or what Chalmers said, negligence of the word will resign you to living far below your privilege in Christ. It will. So, let's press on to know the Lord. Amen? Let's press on to know Him. Let Charles Spurgeon spur you on. I was spurred on by this this last week. Let him spur you on. He said, live not in the lowlands of bondage now that mountain liberty has been conferred upon you. Press forward to things more sublime, more heavenly. Aspire to a higher, a nobler, a fuller life. Upward to heaven. Live nearer to God. So, what shall we do? Right? We want to we press on to know the Lord. What shall we do? I believe, I believe you want this. I think that's why you're here. And... We want to help you. I want to help you. So I have, I have a few applications this morning, okay? I want, to, I want to point you to a few points of application, and we could go so much further. And so if you're thinking, well, he missed one. Well, this is not exhaustive, all right? Um, what do we do? First, we run to the Word with a prayerful heart. Why do I say with a prayerful heart that we ask that God does the work in us that needs to happen for us to desire to devour the word? But we run to the word with a prayerful heart. Read, meditate, memorize, pray over the scriptures. Hunt for promises like you're looking for a hidden treasure. Because guess what? You are. That's what Paul, David said, more to be desired. Our gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. He's talking about God's word. Rid yourself of every excuse for why you cannot. Okay? If you say, I don't have much time. I don't have enough time to read the Word. I just, there's not enough time in the day. Listen, people that, 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 that bank on that excuse endlessly, if there were 48-hour days, they wouldn't have enough time. I'm telling you. We all have the same amount of time. And if that is you, if you say, I just don't have time, then may I urge you in love to seriously look at how to rearrange your life. Because this is a must. This is a must. 
Now, if you say, I don't like to read, all right, listen, I love you, I love you, but get rid of that pathetic excuse. It's lame. If I told you, I have a book, it's a 300-page book, and if you read it this week, and you write a three-page report on the subject matter of that book, and if you do, you get a million bucks, you all of a sudden would be very interested in reading. We all would be. Okay? I'm in. There is no more important subject matter to study than theology. And don't be scared by that word. It just simply means the study of God. There is no more important subject matter than theology. It is the queen of sciences. You live in, this, you live in God's world. He sets the rules by which we can live. and flourish, we should set out to know him and his ways. Amen? Amen. Second, application. Oh, you know, I'm going to send out, I'm going to send out a Bible reading plan this week, or maybe a couple, and you can look at them. Maybe there's one that would fit your, uh, your per, I was going to say personality, that might, you might feel led to use instead of another. But I think that can be helpful at times is to have a reading plan. Number two, so run to the word. That Write prayerfully. Run to the word. Second, and to good books. Okay? Don't waste your time on junk. Read books that point you to the one that Peter describes as the one who calls you to his own own glory and excellence. Okay? Um, you should be careful about what you're going to spend your money on and your time on reading outside the Bible. You should. There's just a lot of, I mean, you go into the bookstore and man, I look at that, that first shelf that has all the bestsellers. I'm like, oh my goodness. They're selling heresy now. I'm kind of joking, but it's like, wow. I'm jo- I mean, kind of joking, kind of not. Wow. We should be careful what we read outside the Bible. We should. It matters. Sometime soon, um, I'm going to take a group, whoever would feel led to be part of this, through a study, through a book called uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer's book. It is a classic. It's a modern classic, but it's a classic. In fact, I think every Christian adult should read through it, and maybe like every other year, but at least once. Okay, so read good books. Read good books. Fill your mind with that which is going to build you up and point you to God.
Number three, so run to the word. Amen? Prayerfully, second, end to good books. And third, work toward a common confession as a body. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to kind of back into this and, and, then, and then give you my application later. In a few weeks, um, the children ages 6 through 11 are going to start a new curriculum. And it's called New City Catechism Curriculum. Um, it's based on a catechism. Now, some might be like, whoa, wait a second, catechism, that sounds bad. But it's a Bible word. It simply means to teach or instruct orally. It consists, this, this particular curriculum consists of 52 questions and answers with Scripture um, covering the foundational, covering the foundational truths of the Christian faith. It has a lesson that goes along with it, so it's not like they're just repeating questions and answers, but there's a lesson that goes along with it. And I would like for us as a church to go through this as well. And I'm not saying everyone is going to feel the same way, but we're going to, we're going to go for it, all right? We're going to go for it. Um, it's really good stuff. And I think it is increasingly important that we are united in a common faith. A common confession. This is what we believe. This is what we believe. So starting in a few weeks, you're going to see a question and answer in Scripture in the bulletin. And we're going to cover it really quickly in the morning worship service. Just read it and, and just a, maybe a few thoughts about it. Um, but here, for instance, here's how it's going to go, okay? So question one. I, I have this memorized. I do, I think. Someone... Okay, some people here that could correct me aren't here, so good. Um, Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The scripture that goes with it is Romans 14, 7 and 8, which says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So, we're going to start going through that, not only the kids, but also as a church. And I'm going to send more information out. There's going to be stuff you can do throughout the week. There's a devotional you can buy to go through at home, especially parents with kids. Or you can download the app, which is free and is about the same as the devotion. I think it's exactly the same content-wise as the devotional. So I'll send information out on that. The kids also are going to get a book in class um, that they can take home as well to review and and just, just to encourage one another in our homes with these precious truths. I mean, think about if that Romans 14, 7, and 8, if it, memorizing's massively important, but what if it, was more than just memorization and got branded on our souls. Powerful. I mean, I pray, I'm praying that that happens here as we gather Sunday, but also throughout the week in your homes. Brothers and sisters, a true knowledge of God truly is powerful. It is. So, let us press on to know God. The Lord.
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful.